Well, humanitas, humanitas and interfaith studies are the key words that outline the thematic frame of these lectures. And when I got the invitation to start this program and began to think about a suitable topic, I realized that these two terms fit precisely an interest of mine that exercises my mind for at least 30 years <clears throat> and forms the subject of several books and articles. <clears throat> and I may therefore be permitted, in spite of all the information which Guy already gave about several of my books, again to give this lecture a somewhat autobiographical note because these topics are so close to my heart. The topic I'm thinking of is the great transformation of the ancient world that is commonly referred to as the turn from polytheism to monotheism, or from a plurality of cults to what came to be understood by the term religion. This transition may also be conceived of as a form of interreligious relation, but not between the new emergent religions, but between the archaic system of polytheistic cults and the new system of monotheistic, canon-based religions. What I'm most deeply interested in thus is not so much uh, the rise of biblical monotheism, a topic that fills by now whole libraries, but the transition as such, seen not from the viewpoint <clears throat> of what it led to, but from the viewpoint <clears throat> um, uh, that is to say what it led to the viewpoint of monotheism, but from the viewpoint of what went before, ancient Egypt, for instance. Exploring not the origin of something, but the transition from something old to something new and different means exploring both sides. The, term, the terms translation and translatability refer to one aspect of this transition. The opposite aspect that implies untranslatability could be referred to as conversion meaning a radical change, a total rejection of the old. There is a very powerful ancient symbol of this transition, the narrative of the exodus from Egypt. Kant referred to this symbol in defining another great transformation, namely enlightenment as an exodus, ausgang, exit of man's self-imposed immaturity. Egypt is the biblical symbol of what went before and what must be left behind in order to enter the new world of monotheism. It is thus not so far-fetched after all for an Egyptologist to become interested in or even haunted by this transition. Egyptology is in fact in a privileged position to investigate the turn from both sides of the watershed especially from the side of the rejected paganism. In the 17th century, this enterprise, the study of paganism or paganology, would have been called Theologia Gentilis, a favorite subject of the time, which I would like to take up three to four hundred years later with the findings and tools of modern Egyptology. 
The most influential treatment of the turn or paradigm shift that I have in mind is Karl Jaspers' book of 1949, Vom Ursprung und Ziel der Geschichte, On the Origin and Goal of History, in which he expounded his theory of the axial age. In an oversimplified version, the argument runs briefly as follows. In the middle of the first millennium BCE, a change, or to use Jasper's term, a breakthrough, occurred in various parts of the ancient world that created our spiritual and intellectual... Ah, uh -huh. Yeah, it's, it's also here a problem. Is there anyone? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. No. Now it works. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. 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 One has to be careful not to step yes. on. The Yeah, so perhaps it now it's. Yeah, now it's perhaps stronger. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I shall go on it. We'll try. There are so many seats down uh, closer to. So perhaps the acoustic is better down uh, up there. I don't know. <clears throat> well, in. So. Um, I, I, I try to go on. Perhaps uh, if, if you really don't understand up there, then you just come down. And, uh, um, well, in an <clears throat> oversimplified version, the argument runs briefly as follows. In the middle of the first millennium BCE, a change, or to use Jasper's term, a breakthrough occurred in various parts of the ancient world that created our spiritual and intellectual world as we know it, and the kind of human being with whom we are living, homo axialis, so to speak. And this breakthrough had been brought about by great individuals, such as from east to west, Confucius, Lao Tse, Meng Tse, Buddha, Zarathustra, the Hebrew prophets and the Greek philosophers, tragedians and poets. And in this form, the theory goes back to scholars of the 18th and 19th century, such as Abraham Hyacinthe Anquetil du Perron, Abel Remusat, Ernest von Lasso, Victor von Strauss, and many others. The hallmark of this breakthrough, according to Jaspers, is the critique of the given and the rejection of tradition in the light of truth. Instead of breakthrough, one could as well speak of exodus, the exodus from tradition to truth. In the frame of this theory, the exodus story appears as part of a much greater, even universal evolution. The problem with the axial theory is twofold. It overgeneralizes and it overdramatizes the character of the change. Yeah, it, it seems to be too, too low. Yeah. So, thank you. <clears throat> 
So overgeneralization means that various or two different phenomena are lumped together in a way that destroys their specificity. And over-dramatization means that the past, the world that preceded the axial age, <clears throat> becomes dark, strange, and ununderstandable, untranslatable. It has no character of its own. It's a mere not yet. The transition I am interested in takes simply not place in this conception. The axial breakthrough is a sudden turn from black to white, from non-being to being. It is neither a translation nor a conversion or inversion because the pre-axial world for which Egypt is the biblical symbol is a mere blank. Eric Vogelin, who undertook a similar project, not quite independently, since he spent a year at Heidelberg studying with Alfred Weber, from whom Jaspers took his idea of the axial age. So Eric Vogelin has the merit of giving the pre-axial world a positive profile of its own by forming the concept of the cosmological societies. This term refers to a worldview that identifies the divine with the cosmos or the powers immanent in the cosmos, in nature. Vogelin's term for the turn in question is leap in being. Mankind, I quote, mankind in its, in its entirety performs a leap. The concept of the cosmological society, that is the integration of society into nature, and the idea of divine immanence means an important advance towards uh, Theologia Gentilis. Vogelin consulted the best Egyptological and Assyriological literature available at his time, especially the works of James Henry Breasted, John Wilson, Henry Frankfurt, and Torkild Jakobson to draw a fair, differentiated, and interesting picture of the pre-axial world. What I find most interesting in Vogelin's construction of cosmological society is his concept of zomodeism, the div divine world or pantheon of a cosmological society. No? Oh, still working, okay. Um, <clears throat> um, so, uh, the pantheon of a cosmological society is regularly headed by a supreme god who reigns as king over the other deities in the same way as human society is headed by a monarch. And there's a relation of mutual mirroring between the divine and human worlds. The king acts as a terrestrial representative or deputy of the supreme god in Egypt, even as his son. The political correspondent to somotheism and divine immanence, what I call cosmotheism, is sacred kingship. Theologia Gentilis, in this view, is political theology. Still, in spite of his insights and findings, Vogelin was confined to second-hand sources, missed important changes and developments within these archaic civilizations, and fell, fell into pretty much the same trap 
as the diasporas in over-dramatizing the change, the leap in being, and in over-generalizing his view of cosmological society. Froegelin made without any doubt a very considerable start, enlightening the far too dark picture of pre-axial culture, but being an outsider lacking direct access to the sources he left the main task to Egyptology and Assyriology proper. My own efforts in illuminating the pre-axial world date back to the early 80s, thus to 30 years ago, when I was committed to write a book on ancient Egyptian religion. It is this book from which it all started, my interest in ancient Egyptian theology and its afterlife in Hermitism, Neoplatonism, and what I later came to call, using a term coined by Jacobi for Spinozism, Occidental Cosmotheism, as well as my fascination with the inexhaustible significance of the antagonistic constellation of Egypt and Israel. In this book, I try to give a synthesis of my research on Egyptian religious texts, especially hymns, starting from the analysis of an important Egyptian text, that implies two concepts of religion, a broader and a narrower one. And the relevant passage runs like this. Re, the sun god and creator, has placed the king on earth forever and ever, in order that he may establish ma'at and annihilate isfet, so ma'at, justice, order, <clears throat> and truth, and isfet, the contrary, so disorder, injustice, and lie. In order that he may establish Ma'at and annihilate Isfet, judge mankind and satisfy the gods, giving offerings to the gods and funerary offerings to the dead. To establish Ma'at and annihilate Isfet, this formula refers to the broad concept of religion, encompassing both cult and culture. Within this broad concept, the next verse draws a further distinction, providing a narrower concept of religion. It distinguishes between a cultic and a more secular way of establishing Maat, to satisfy the gods and to judge, that is to administer justice to mankind. And this incidentally teaches us that in Egypt the law was not a sacred institution as it was in Israel, nor was it a medium to satisfy the gods. On the contrary, the law was kept outside the sphere of religion proper, which was exclusively concerned with communicating with the divine. Satisfying the gods meant engaging in active worship, sacrificing and giving offerings, performing the prescribed rituals, and observing festivals. It did not mean abiding by the laws, administering justice, rescuing the poor, supporting widows and orphans, and all that, and all that belongs to the guidance of a morally responsible life. We get thus a first model of what I would like to call twofold religion, religio duplex or a double concept of religion. Religion in the very general sense of establishing order and harmony on earth, and religion in the rather concrete and particular sense of cult. It is interesting to note, by the way, 
that this system, on the one hand, draws a distinction in a realm that the Bible insists on identity, and that, on the other hand, implies an indistinction that the Bible introduces a sharp distinction. The indistinction concerns the identity of state and religion. The Egyptian state resembles the Christian church in that it represents the sovereignty of God on earth among humankind. The distinction, conversely, concerns the separation of justice and cult. To be sure, in delivering justice to mankind, the king acts on God's orders and represents divine justice among the living. But this has nothing to do with satisfying, satisfying the gods. Ma'at in the cultic context does not relate to justice and morality, but rather to order and abundance. The spheres of justice, ethics, and, and cult are carefully kept apart, whereas in the Bible they are constantly put into close relationship. And this is another aspect of the Exodus symbol, the transition from Egypt to Israel, from polytheism to monotheism. One might say that this distinction between the spheres of justice and of cult has been consciously and emphatically destroyed in biblical monotheism. Both performing the rights and doing justice means to fulfill the will of God and the prophets even insist on the priority of justice. Their famous invectives against sacrificial cultism reject the idea that God can be satisfied by priestly efforts alone. Instead, they promote the idea that in the eyes of God, justice is far more important than sacrifice. Justice thus moves to the center of religion. This step is crucial for understanding the revolutionary innovation brought about by biblical monotheism. As soon as the latter adopted the idea of justice as its religious centerpiece, it began looking down on pagan religions as lacking any ethical normativity and orientation. This concept of paganism has been a commonplace of biblical scholarship and theological thought right up to the present day. However, the view of pagan religion as morally indifferent applies only to religion in its narrow sense. Here, the only distinction that matters is the cultic distinction between pure and impure, not the moral distinction between good and evil. And nevertheless, it would be a gross distortion of historical truth to deny any ancient pagan civilizations any ethical foundation and orientation. And these questions are dealt with not within the context of religion proper in a narrow sense, which is concerned to satisfy the gods, but in the comparatively secular context of judging, that is, administering justice to mankind. In the broader framework of establishing ma'at, justice and morals play a central role, and almost everything that the Bible has to say on these topics is inherited from its ancient Near Eastern and Egyptian neighbors. In preparing my aforementioned book on Egyptian religion, I finally decided to limit myself to the narrow concept of religion, namely to satisfy the gods in the sense of divine communication. It appeared in 1984 
under the title Theology and Piety, avoiding the term religion altogether. An English translation appeared in 2001 under the title The Search of God in Ancient Egypt. In preferring the term theology to religion, I distinguished between explicit and implicit theology. By explicit theology, I mean a discourse about God and the divine world that, in contrast to mythology, is not structured according to the rules of narration, but rather to those of argumentation. Explicit theology is a specific phenomenon that does not necessarily exist in every religious tradition. There are doubtlessly many tribal and traditional religions that did not develop an explicit theology. And even in Egypt, explicit theology did not exist right from the start, but developed slowly in the Middle and Early New Kingdoms between, say, 1900 and 1400 BCE and exploded in the Remicide Age in response to the monotheistic revolution of Amarna. And judging from hundreds of preserved texts, ancient Egypt seems to have turned between 1300 and 1100 into a country of theologians, with explicit theology becoming the major concern of the time. Implicit theology, by contrast, is a necessary prerequisite to every cult or religion in the narrow sense, in the same way as grammar is a necessary prerequisite of every language, irrespective of whether or not an explicit grammar of that language exists. By now it has become obvious <clears throat> among Egyptologists that the Egyptian pantheon was anything but a random accumulation of deities. The former view of Egyptian polytheism interpreted the pantheon as a result of political unification. According to common opinion, then, these deities were originally worshipped more or less in isolation by tribes and villages living in Egypt in similar isolation. Through the process of increasing alliances and of final unification, these originally unrelated deities were brought into contact with one another. And their familial and other relations reflected the emerging state and society of Pharaonic Egypt. This explanation may hold for Mesopotamia or other early states and societies, but not for ancient Egypt. Here, most of the deities are not autochthonous to their places of worship. Rather, the relationship between place and pantheon has to be seen the other way around. It is not the interrelation and unification of places that structures a previously unstructured set of deities, but it is the structured pantheon, or divine world, that lends structure and unity to human reality, including the various tribes and towns that comprise the Egyptian state and society. Without an understanding of what polytheism means, it is impossible to get to a deeper understanding of the transition from poly to monotheism. In working on that book of mine, it became clear to me that two or more millennia of monotheism have blocked the access to the pre-monotheistic world. Polytheism means cosmotheism in the sense of the immanence of the divine in the world. According 
to the cosmotheistic worldview, the divine does not confront the world from the outside, but penetrates and animates it from within, giving it structure and meaning. The element poly is immaterial, because the texts speak constantly of the oneness of God. For this reason, the term polytheism is misleading. The Egyptian theology can be characterized as a cosmogonic monotheism. The text insists on the divine origin of the world and on the oneness of this origin. It is one God from whom the world originated in the form both of emanation and of creation as complementary ways of emergence. The oneness of transcendent origin and the plurality of immanent manifestation are two dialectically related aspects of the world with explicit theology focusing on the aspect of cosmogonic unity and the implicit theology on that of manifest plurality. In all polytheism, wrote Eric Fogelin, is latent a monotheism which can be activated at any time. In Egypt came the time of activating the latent monotheism in the 14th century BCE with the religious revolution of Akhenaten, who quite simply and radically did away with the plurality of gods and abolished traditional religion altogether. In reaction to this violent step, the priests developed an inclusive monotheism that was able to combine both the monistic and the pluralistic view of the divine word, following the device, all gods are one. It took me some time until I realized that this form of monotheism did not disappear with the Great Transformation, but coexisted with the victorious biblical monotheism as its shadow counterpart, or, as Klaus Müller called it, Tiefenstrom, deep current of European, <clears throat> European religious history until the 18th century and beyond, lending it the structure of religio duplex. I will come back to this in the next lecture. After having dealt with religion in the narrow sense of cult, piety, and theology, I devoted my next book to Egyptian religion in the broad sense of ma'at, the idea of divine justice, truth, and order, and harmony. In this book, I explicitly took up Vogelin's concept of the transition from Egypt to Israel as a leap in being, from cosmological society to monotheism, and try to come to terms with his ideas about Egypt. Ma'at is the best example of what Fogelin called compactness. He viewed the transition, his leap in being, as a progress from compactness to differentiation. He had certainly a good point there, but what he was unable to see were the considerable changes that the concept of Ma'at underwent during the three millennia of Egyptian history. First, at the turn from the third to the second millennium, with the emergence of the concept of a judgment of, it, of the dead, and a kind of paradise or illusium for those who led their life according to Ma'at, and then with the rise of personal piety, with the concept of a personal relationship, of mutual election between an individual and a specific deity. 
If you abstract from these and other rather dramatic changes, you receive an all-too-monolithic image of the Egyptian world, which then makes a rather stark contrast if confronted to the biblical world. Only by carefully studying the Egyptian sources and by reconstructing their location in time, space, and society, you realize that there were several breakthroughs or leaps in being within Egyptian history itself that preceded the decisive transition symbolized by the Exodus narrative. However, these first steps did not cross the border to the other side and did not tackle the question of the transition. The first book of mine that actually dealt with Egypt and Israel, the topic of the Exodus and its symbolism as a narrative expression of the transition, was the already mentioned book, Moses the Egyptian. I started working on this project in California when I discovered the university library at Los Angeles, and there a book of whose existence I had no idea and which disclosed for me a totally new chapter in the history, or rather the prehistory, of Egyptology. One would never guess from its title that this book deals with ancient Egypt, but in fact it does. It is by John Spencer, an old acquaintance of Professor Strumsas, titled De Legibus Hebreorum Ritualibus et Earum Rationibus Libri Tres and appeared in 1685. Its key word is translatio, the idea being that Moses, having been raised and educated as a prince at the Egyptian court and consequently been initiated into the Egyptian mysteries and all the secret wisdom of Egypt, simply translated or transcodified the Egyptian hieroglyphs into Hebrew ritual laws. In order to better grasp the boldness of Spencer's interpretation of the transition from Egypt to Israel, from poly to monotheism, or from paganism to true religion, in terms of translation, instead of revolution, reaction, inversion, abomination, it seems necessary to insert here an excursus on the importance of translation in religious history. The easiness with which the ancient peoples translated the names of their gods into those of another language and religion is a phenomenon that has met with too little attention. The case of the Interpretatio Latina of the Greek gods is so familiar a phenomenon that we take the translatability of gods as self-evident. In the Greek or Roman case, one could always argue that the religions behind this linguistic operation are not fundamentally different. This argument, however, does not apply to the religions of Greece and Egypt. However, even the Greeks and the Egyptians had no difficulty in, in translating their respective pantheon. We know about this system from toponyms and personal names. When after the conquest of Egypt by Alexander the Great, the Greeks settled in Egypt and ruled the country for several hundred years, they renamed most of the Egyptian towns to render their names pronounceable for Greek tongues. Since each town and major village in Egypt hosted a specific deity or was held to be lord or lady of that town, the Greek took the name of this deity in its Greek form and attached to it the word polis, town. Edfu, the town sacred to Horus, 
whose famous temple is still very well preserved, became Apollinopolis. <clears throat> Dendera, the town of Hathor, became Aphroditopolis. Ashmunein, the town of Tot, was called Hermopolis, and so on. In some cases, the name of the god was replaced by that of the sacred animal. That, thus, we get names like Hieraconpolis, or Falcon Town, or Crocodilopolis, and so on. These were, apparent, yeah. These were apparently no limits. There were apparently no limits to the translatability of Egyptian gods. The same system was applied to the Hellenization of Egyptian private names, which were usually formed with divine names. <coughs> Petefri, Potiphar in Hebrew, becomes Heliodor. Tutmose becomes Hermogenes. Pediese is rendered as Isidorus. Pedamun as Diodorus. Hori as Apollonius, and so on. And such Hellenized Theophorus names became very common among Egyptians under the Ptolemies. And these practices were based on a well-established system of equivalences between Egyptian and Greek divine names. And Herodotus, who refers to this system, shows that it was already existing more than 100 years before the Greek conquest of Egypt. He went even so far as to say that almost all the Greek deities were imported from Egypt. And this shows that the translation of Egyptian gods into Greek ones was not only Greek, but also an Egyptian initiative. The Egyptians, however, were by no means the first to establish links between deities of different religions. They rather applied a cultural technique which goes back for another 2,000 years and which was first elaborated and practiced by the Mesopotamians, who during the third millennium BCE spoke Sumerian and Akkadian, two completely unrelated languages. In the context of Mesopotamian bilingualism, there was, of course, a proliferation of Sumero-Arcadian glossaries, correlating Sumerian and Arcadian lexemes, and nothing seems more natural than to include among those glossaries also lists correlating Sumerian and Arcadian names of gods. There are bilingual lists containing Sumerian names and their Arcadian counterparts, and explanatory lists containing an additional third column giving the functional definition of the deity. Theoretically speaking, proper names are untranslatable because they refer not to concepts for which there might exist different words in different languages, but to individual persons. Unlike a concept, a person cannot be translated. Gods, however, may be conceived of as persons and as concepts. If a deity is seen as a person, translation means that this person is called by different names in different languages. This is what the bilingualists of God seem to presuppose, because they keep within the frame of one common Sumero-Arcadian religion. For the explanatory lists, however, which give also the common conceptual dominator, the gods are not only persons, but have also a meaning. And it is this meaning that makes them translatable across the boundaries, not only of language, but even of culture, religion, and society. 
And therefore, along with the expansion of cuneiform writing and political influence in the second half of the second millennium BCE, we see the technique of translating gods to be extended to many different languages and religions. There's an explanatory list of gods which contains, besides Sumerian and Arcadian, divine names in Amoritic, Huritic, Elamic, and Kassitic. And there are even lists translating Theophorus' proper names of persons. If we ask for the meaning of these gods, we are referred in most cases to cosmic phenomena. At least the names of these gods lend themselves most easily to translation. Sun and moon, heaven and earth, air and water, desert and fertile land are among the most common semantic contents referred to by divine names. In another category belong birth and death, health and sickness, love, beauty, sexuality, and in the third one, cultural functions such as kingship, hunting, warfare, writing, mathematics, administration, victory, mummification, hospitality, and so on. As a general rule, we may state that all these conceptual meanings of divine names are aspects of the world in which we are living. The principle of translating gods is based on immanence. A deity must be must be able to point to something he, she is standing for. I am the sky, I am the air, I am the sun, and so on, in order to be translatable into another language and religion. Two points are important. Firstly, the concept of a functionally divided and divinely animated and spirited universe in which mankind finds and maintains their place by recognizing and adoring the operative powers, by giving them names and iconographies, temples and ceremonies, and secondly, the natural evidence of these operative powers, be it cosmic phenomena like sun and moon, or biological phenomena such as birth and death, or cultural phenomena such as kingship and wisdom. This is technique of not only naming, but also defining gods and determining the conceptual content they represent, is the great achievement of polytheism. Tribal religions cannot be correlated by mutual translation, because ancestor spirits do not represent a common conceptual content. Tribal religions are by necessity ethnocentric. Polytheism is a form of conceptual articulation of the divine world, and as such, the only form of religion which allows for intercultural translatability. If we ask for the agenda behind the Mesopotamian technique of translating gods, we are certainly not referred to motifs of tolerance, but rather to specific political purposes in the context of international law and Assyrio-Babylonian expansionism. The deities played an important role in the treaties which the Assyrians, Babylonians, Hittites, and other states formed with each other, but above all, with their vassal states. And these treaties had to be sealed by solemn oaths invoking gods of both parties, and these gods had necessarily to be equivalent as to their rank and function. Intercultural theology became a concern of international law. 
Translating gods appears as a technique of overcoming cultural and political boundaries. Herodotus' description of ancient Egypt illustrates the general principle. Peoples, cultures, and political systems may be as different as, for instance, ancient Egypt, which is represented as the inversion of Greek normality. But when it comes to religion, and if it is possible to show even the most exotic and extravagant people to have a religion and to worship some definite and identifiable gods, a common ground appears on which to build a treaty or other forms of contact and cooperation. The names, iconographies, and rites, in short, the cultures differ, but the, co the gods are comparable. This practice of translating gods eventually fostered a general conviction typically typical of late antique mentality, that the gods were the same everywhere, and that only their names, iconographies, and forms of worship differed among the various nations. In his treatise on Isis and Osiris, Plutarch brings this general conviction to the point by starting by stating that behind the diverse divine names there are always common cosmic phenomena. The sun, the moon, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and so on. As all people live in the same world, they adore the same gods, who are the lords of this world. I quote, Nor do we regard the gods as different among different nations, nor as barbarian and Greek and as southern and northern. But just as the sun, moon, heaven, earth, and sea are common to all, though they are given various names by the varying nations, so it is with the one reason, Logos, which orders these things, and the one providence which has charge of them, and the assistant powers which are assigned to everything. They are given different honors and modes of address among different nations according to custom, and they use hallowed symbols. End of quote. The divine names are translatable because there is always a referent serving as a tertium comparationis. And this referent is the concept of a functionally divided and divinely animated universe in which mankind finds and maintains its place by recognizing and adoring the operative powers, by giving them names and iconographies, temples and ceremonies. It is obvious that with the transition from cosmotheism to monotheism, this principle of divine translatability was abolished, because a transcendent God has no cosmic function that could serve as a common denominator for equating him with another God. God did not say, I am the sun, or even I am all that is, was, and will be, like the Egyptian goddess of the veiled image at Zeiss, but I am that I am, thus crossing out any reference to the world. The new religion could not enter by translation, but only by conversion. You may imagine how big a surprise Spencer's book meant to me, that based its reconstruction of the relation between Egypt and Israel on the idea of translation. Spencer understood the exodus from Egypt as a form of cultural transfer, His argument was, in fact, rather rational. Why did God bring his people to Egypt? Why did he make them stay there for 400 years? Why did he give them a leader who was thoroughly initiated into Egyptian wisdom? 
The obvious reason was because he wanted to give his people a religion that was on the same level of wisdom and sophistication as the Egyptian religion. In his eyes, <clears throat> the similarities between Egyptian and Hebrew religion were much greater and more important than the differences. The decisive common element was secrecy. The simultaneous coexistence of two different religions or forms of religion in one culture and society, the one public, official, and exoteric, one secret and esoteric. This structure came to be called by Reimann and others religio or philosophia duplex, the twofold religion or philosophy. Spencer conceived of hieroglyphs as a kind of double code conveying a secret message under the surface or veil or shell. Spencer is inexhaustible in finding synonyms for his idea of double coding of an open one. Egyptian religion had a double face, one for the people and one for the sages. Now this is precisely the kind of religion which God wanted the Hebrew religion to become. The ritual laws that Moses instituted had the same double meaning as the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Spencer's term, which he took from Maimonides, is verba duplicata, translating Hebrew divrei kfilayim. It would be interesting to know the Arabic original of this term. Spencer was an Anglican clergyman, dean of Eli and master of Corpus Christi College. He devised his theory of the Egyptian origin of biblical religion in good faith, believing to do a service to the understanding of Christianity, and basing his concept of religio duplex on the theological, <clears throat> theological doctrine of accommodation. God, in his wisdom, did not disclose the truth to his people in clear language, once and for all, but accommodated his revelation to the limited and only slowly growing capacity of the human mind. <clears throat> Accommodation is just another word for Spencer's concept of translation. It means the translation of an absolute and eternal truth into the temporal and relative language of a given society at a given epoch. Spencer gave the structure of religio duplex a theological interpretation. Everything in such a religion has a double meaning, a sensus primarius, or literal meaning, and a sensus secundarius, or secret meaning. The literal meaning is for the senses and the masses, the secret meaning for the understanding mind and the initiated elite. However, Spencer did not go so far as to inquire about the content of this structure, the doctrines of Egyptian secret theology. This was the subject of another project, pursued at the same time and place, Cambridge, by a colleague of Spencer, Ralph Cutworth, Regius Professor of Hebrew at Cambridge University. <laughs> the authentic Egyptian sources that could inform Cutworth about Egyptian theology were, of course, close to him. And he was prudent enough not to use any of Athanasius Kircher's fanciful translations of hieroglyphic inscriptions. Instead, he filled the gap with the treatises of the Corpus Hermeticum, which he rescued from Casorban's verdict 
as a late antique forgery, showing that the 17 treatises that formed the corpus were not one, but 17 texts, dating from different periods, and that their being late in the Greek language testifies to the perseverance and translatability of Egyptian archaic theology, but not to its late and Greek origin. What Cutworth wanted to prove uh, as a true intellectual system of the universe was monotheism as the common belief of all humanity, common to polytheists and even atheists. Atheists are but negative monotheists, since they negate the existence not of many gods, but of one god. And polytheists are cosmogonic monotheists, since they believe in one god as the origin of everything, including the other gods. Cutworth thus anticipated Vogelin's statement about the latent monotheism in every polytheism by almost three centuries. He, moreover, explained this latency in terms of secrecy. Polytheistic religions develop the structure of religio duplex containing a public and an arcane theology. Ancient Egypt is the oldest and most explicit example of such a double religion, and the arcane theology of the ancient Egyptians is codified in its latest stage in the Greek language in the treatises that form the Corpus Hermeticum. The gist of this theology may be summarized as the belief in the all and one, hen kai pan, the all-encompassing, all-engendering, self-created origin of the universe. This is exactly Spinoza's Deus Diva Natura, but Cutworth is very careful and makes great efforts to save this idea from any tints of materialism. The one that is all is pure, pure spirit, vivifying and animating the world from within and without. And this is another version of Spencer's idea of transition as translation. Spencer thought of a functional translation of hieroglyphic Egyptian religion into ritualistic Hebrew religion, the ritual laws fulfilling the function of Egyptian hieroglyphs as exterior shells containing an interior truth. Cutworth conceived of a translation of Egyptian arcane theology into Greek and European philosophy, especially Hermetism, Neoplatonism, and possibly even Spinozism. Between polytheism and monotheism, both Spencer and Cutworth erected the boundary of secrecy. Spencer saw in this boundary the expression of God's wisdom, condescendence, and even cunning, giving mankind a religion that was sensuous and carnal in its exterior and spiritual in its interior. Cutworth, following Plato, interpreted the boundary in terms of a sociology of knowledge. There are always only few, a small elite that is intelligent enough to understand the deeper meaning of the myths, symbols, and allegories in which the higher wisdom uses to veil the truth. The masses, hoi poloi in Plato's terminology, stick to the outward appearance. Sixty years later, William Warburton, the Bishop of Gloucester, came up with a political interpretation of this boundary. The latent monotheism of ancient religions, 
had to be kept secret, not because of the inability of the masses to grasp it, but because it was based on the worship of nature. And the natural religion cannot support a state, because nature does not know of any political boundaries, and that does not distinguish between friend and foe, or good and evil. A state needs personal deities who punish and reward and who give an expression to the respective collective identities of town, province, state, and empire. Being excluded from revelation, which was given only to Moses and the Israelites, these civilizations had to invent their pantheon, turning meritorious kings and lawgivers and cultural heroes into gods. In order not to overturn this system by exposing its fictive character, the true religion of nature had to be kept secret and turned into a mystery cult to be observed underground in strictest seclusion. The model for this structure was again, and of course, ancient Egypt, that developed not only two scripts, one secret, one public, but also two forms of architecture, one above one underground. For the Egyptian tombs that the travelers described as covered with hieroglyphs became now to be interpreted as subterranean places of study and worship. In this form, the concept of religious duplex won an enormous influence with the secret societies that were mushrooming all over Europe during the latter part of the 18th century. For the most part, these groups and movements adhered to a religion of nature, or natural religion, and saw in ancient Egypt, with its structure of religio duplex, a mirror and model of their own situation, being forced to pursue the project of enlightenment under the condition of political and clerical absolutism and censorship, and therefore of secrecy. In the context of these circles, the relation between archaic paganism and the new monotheism, symbolized by the Exodus narrative, now assumed the form of a tension between the religion of nature and the religion of revelation that was no longer conceived of in terms of transition, be it through conversion or translation, but by juxtaposition in howsoever conflictual coexistence within the religio duplex model, the revealed religion or monotheism forming the exoteric side and natural religion or cosmotheism, the esoteric side. As early as 1719, the German theologian Theodor Ludwig Lau applied the medieval doctrine of the two books of God, the book of nature and the book of scripture, to the distinction between natural and revealed religion religion of nature and religion of scripture, thus giving the religion of nature the same dignity of a divine institution as the religion of scripture. His pub he published his work, Meditationes, Theses, Dubia Philosophico-Theologica, in the form of a series of theses. And Thesis 12 reads, Religio duplex, rationes and et Revelationes. So religion exists in a twofold form as religion of reason and religion of revelation. The religion of reason, he explains, worships God as the creator and ruler of the world. His book is this universe. 
The religion of Revelation, on the other hand, is taught through the two books of the Old and the New Testament. This religion distinguishes between those who accept them and those who reject them, assigning the one to heaven and the others to hell. God manifests himself in the world in a twofold way, one universal, one particular. The universal manifestation given to all humankind is the creation. The particular manifestation given only to the Jews and Christians is the Holy Writ. The universal manifestation through creation is older. The particular manifestation came later. The first is given to all nations, the second only to the chosen people. But all people are deistes, worshipping the one and true God. And this important text, the concept of religio duplex is reinterpreted in the sense of two religions coexisting not in the framework of one given civilization, such as Egypt, but in the global world, one being the religion of all people, the other the religion of the chosen people, but both being divine. In this position that met with no acceptance at the time of its publication and forced his author into clandestinity, was taken up 60 years later by thinkers such as Mendelssohn and Lessing and led to an enormously influential reinterpretation of the idea of religio duplex. But this will be the subject of my lecture tomorrow, in which it will hopefully become a little clearer what all this has to do with humanitas and interfaith. Thank you for your attention. Thank you.